Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. And Benjamin Bernanke would say with his history, as with Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz, it's always in every case about the banking and financial system, which is under stress. That is a good introduction to Anastasia Amoroso for years covering Eastern Europe and all. And now with iCapital Network with a much broader remit. Anastasia, let's go back a couple years and speak of the turmoil. Link in a higher oil price, real inflation worries. Mr. Erdogan has, some would say self-inflicted, in the destabilization of Turkey. How idiosyncratic is it, or can it be a contagion? Well, Tom, I do think at this moment it is idiosyncratic to Turkey, and there's just too many issues in Turkey that have been building up for too long. You know the current account deficit issues, you know the rundown of the reserves, and when inflation is running at 20%, the last thing you do is cut interest rates. So this is a bit of a self-inflicted damage here. And I don't think it's representative of other things that are happening in emerging markets, but perhaps identifying pockets of vulnerability is once again something that we need to do. Who has the twin deficits? Who has low reserves? And you know who may not be able to withstand uh, hikes from the Federal Reserve and, and higher dollar? That might be one of the questions that we have for emerging markets in 2022. But broadly speaking, a lot of them are much improved since 2013, though. There's also a larger question here of Erdogan fighting free markets and this idea of how much on a broader level uh, level, uh, policymakers are trying to fight free markets and trying to jawbone down prices or jawbone up uh, valuations. How do you operate as an investor at a time when policymakers, and I'm thinking of the Federal Reserve in particular, is trying to keep a status quo? And we heard from Yuri and Timmer earlier the markets will win because they do not want to disrupt them. Well, I think the markets do ultimately prevail and the supply demand uh, balances prevail. And just to go back to the oil reserves and the release of the strategic petroleum reserve for a moment, it is a temporary move. I think it's kind of the only thing that's within uh, policy control at the moment, but it is going to be a small move. I will say the, res- the release reserve that we're seeing is more than consensus was expecting. But even if we release 30 million barrels, that was likely to translate into a downturn in price of $2 a barrel or so. And so we're probably going to see something more than that. Of course, a lot of it was front loaded. But I I do agree that this is just a temporary sense of control that I think policymakers are trying to exercise. But at the end of the day, it is what is supply demand going to be. And for the broader economy, what is demand going to be and what is inflation going to do? So that's what the policymakers really need to respond to. Well, what strikes me about this reserve release, Anastasia, is that we've seen it three times, emergency releases in U.S. history. It was during Desert Storm, Katrina, and then with the, uh, with the question of Libya in 2011. All of those were because you couldn't get the capacity. You didn't have access to that production. That's not the issue here. You could see a ramping up of output for OPEC+, Plus, or you could see shale players start to pump more oil. They're just not doing it. So how does that make Make this different. 
Yeah, so it does set up a bit of a fight here, I will say, because clearly that's not something OPEC plus wanted to see happen, is to have this coordinated uh, strategic release. But it, And that's why they're starting to talk about potentially um, you know, not ramping up their production. Uh, but the reality that OPEC yeah. has to grapple with is that we are likely to be in a surplus market uh, next year versus the deficit that we've had. So I think they're going to calibrate right. their response carefully to that. Very quickly, Anastasia, do we need a strategic Bitcoin reserve? Let's go to your present <laughs> wheelhouse. <laughs> Well, I do think more and more companies and more and more individuals are building up their cryptocurrency reserves. And yeah. I would expand that beyond uh, Bitcoin, Tom, because Bitcoin has been a great trade this year because inflation was surging and because the Fed was not doing anything about it. Yeah. Now that the dollar is moving higher and the Fed is seemingly going to do something about inflation next year, Bitcoin has lost a little bit of its shine. So there's two things I would say about that. First of all, you take a step back and look at the broader adoption trends of something like Bitcoin. And I do think that's <clears> going to continue to grow inflation right. uh, notwithstanding. But near term, <clears throat> there's other cryptocurrencies that I think uh, do play right. a, a good role in the cryptocurrency reserve. Air Sport, Anastasia Amoroso, thank you so much there with terrific perspective on the Levant and over to Eastern Europe. This is a joy and an immense honor to have Mark McCormick by chance with us now as we see an emerging market currency unravel. If you're just joining us, Turkish Lira is in full collapse. Mark McCormick with TD Securities has been resilient dollar all year. Mark, thrilled to have you on at this historic moment for the people of Turkey. I was out at 3.2 standard deviations half an hour ago. We've now collapsed out to 3.6 standard deviations, getting very close to what the textbooks would say is a point of crisis for standard deviations out. How close is Turkey to unraveling their financial system? Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, I think to start there, we're, we're already pretty much there in terms of the major pivot point. I think what we're seeing here is there's two factors. There's the local factor, the global factor, and there's a negative feedback loop. And the local factor is there's zero credibility and how the government is going to manage its finances. And there's zero credibility in how the central bank will operate within that framework. Uh, so the market has completely lost confidence. And again, when we get to these kind of inflection points, it becomes a nonlinear rather than a linear discussion. And this is where we kind of get to this four standard deviation moment. Um, at some point, someone will step in in terms of whether or not it's the market. It, it's going to be offered a tremendous amount of risk premium and a carry. But we're in an environment now, if you think about what's driving markets on the global side, it's liquidity. The dollar is rallying largely because liquidity is coming out of the G10 bond markets. And so to think about these emerging markets, which, again, no one has a lot of uh, confidence in the central bank. No one has a lot, a lot of confidence right. in the government. No one's buying two-year Turkey swaps. No one's buying CDSs. No <clears throat> one's participating in Turkey, right. which exacerbates that. Mark McCormick, the heat of Ben S. Bernanke of Princeton University is in crisis Watch the banks. TD Securities of Canada has a huge global reach across Europe out of your London desk. What is the financial solidity right now of the Turkish banks and their finance system? 
Well, yeah, that's not something in terms of our uh, general connection that we're going to have uh, access to. But I think, uh, again, a big part of it is how the market's responding and how, uh, you know, conversations we're having with clients about these type of topics. It really kind of comes around to if you think about how these, uh, you know, international investors are participating, everyone wants to talk about it. No one wants to do anything about it. And I think that's the primary channel is there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty. And it's like, when do you catch a falling knife in? You know, my kind of reading of the tea leaves of the people that I speak with and the the interactions we have is no one wants to catch that falling knife just yet. Mark, right now we have been uh, talking about how Turkey is an idiosyncratic story. However, there is a larger pressure that is similar to other developing markets, particularly as the dollar does strengthen, as the Fed is expected to raise rates. At what point do you start to see, not necessarily to the same extent, but similar kinds of pressures in other developing market currencies? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's something that our EM team went through and our global FX outlook or their global outlook as well, which is kind of like what you're doing is you're looking at funding pressures. You're thinking about backing up of of higher interest rates on the U.S. and what impact does that have on capital flow? So essentially, your primary focus is through Latin America. Um, You have countries and again, Turkey is another one. You've got a large current account deficit. Someone needs to fund it. If you're not selling stuff to the rest of the world the way that uh, parts of Asia do and running a trade surplus, well, you now need international investors to uh, participate in your fixed income or your equity market. So when you think about that in a world of rising rates, the, you know, the biggest concern really kind of runs through Latin America, uh, where you have large current account deficits and you're not offered the right carry cushion or you're not, re- you're not offered the right environment in terms of growth and COVID reopening to feel comfortable buying those currencies just yet. And I think that's, um, you know, our our EM team is really focused on how Mexico looks vulnerable next year. And where if you kind of look at that, uh, Brazil could actually be an opportunity because there's so much uh, rates coming through in terms of the central bank hiking, that you're gonna get real rates higher in Brazil, which actually gives you that political uncertainty cushion that will probably pull some investors into Brazil next year. Evaluations in the FX channel already taken into account two or three rate hikes next year as the market's pricing in. Right. I, I think that's a big, a big driver. If you think about what our views are for uh, 2022 as an institution, we are actually very dovish on the Fed. We don't expect the Fed to move until 2023. We are looking for U.S. twos and ten steepener, which is generally kind of correlated with reflation. We're looking for firmer equity prices, and I guess a, a you know a correlation offset that comes into this is really it could be firmer risk appetite, you know, not at the levels we saw at 2021. So when I think when you what's priced in, what we have are real rates that are still going to be really subdued, still potentially negative. We have the market who would have to reprice the 50 basis points worth of tightening that's priced in on the Fed for next year, price that out. Um, And then also you're kind of reversing some of the expectations around U.S. growth. We are looking for U.S. growth next year to fall around uh, to sit around three percent, which is, again, way below market expectations. So for me, um, I think we're in a world again where we're trying to extrapolate the strength of the dollar in the hawkish Fed into what is another, you know, kind of 2022 annual outlook period. Uh, The outlook period now, I think, for the first time is actually bullish the dollar. So our, our higher convictions is basically saying The world is going to be less correlated than when it was, and there's a lot of divergence on terms of trade, on central banks, on growth and valuations. But this is not a clear runway to just think that the dollar is going to rally uh, as quickly, I think, as everyone's assuming at this point. 
so far, Mark, and of course, uh, you're looking at euro dollar that is around 112. Dollar yen, 115, got a taste of that earlier. Is that so much yen or euro weakness, or is that primarily just a dollar strength story? Yeah, that's a good point, too, because I, I think what people need to recognize is that the correlations around euro, especially to emerging markets, is broken down. If you look at euro dollar versus dollar China, uh, we've basically seen these two currencies completely deviate in levels that we've never seen before. So if dollar China is right, we should be at 121. And if euro is right, uh, we should be at you know 680. So I think there's an element here that euro dollar is doing its own thing. Um, the biggest driver there is actually nominal rate spreads. It's not really a real rate story. If you look at the betas, the, no the two-year nominals are about uh, three times more important than, than the real rates. So I think the euro dollar is primarily a focus on the Fed <clears throat> ECB right now. Um, I think people are worried about how COVID reopenings are impacting Germany and the Netherlands and some of these really big, important countries because the Eurozone growth story is actually pretty solid relative to the U.S. So you oh. need the valuation. You need the growth story. You also need equity inflows. And all those things are in flux. So I think there's an element here that dollar yen is about higher rates globally. Stagflation, reflation, higher interest rates. We know that's coming. Uh, but euro dollar is a little bit trickier where I do think if the world starts to heal itself, and we start to think about Eurozone growth, uh, if we start to think about where the relative discounts are at and we start to think about uh, the importance of equity flows, there could be a cushion that comes in there early next year. Mark McCormick, thank you so much. And with Priya Misra, really one of the great outlier calls of a different view to 2022 and 2023. It is time to stop in the political verbiage and actually get perspective. You can always, in every case, do that with Wendy Schiller. To say she's at Brown University barely describes her contribution to the discourse of American politics. Wendy, I want to go to David Morales, the youngest graduate in the history of Brown University's acclaimed public affairs master's program. David Morales' mother picked vegetables out in California, and he ended up with a prestigious degree at your shop. He's a representative a socialist representative from the 7th District of Rhode Island as well. He speaks Senator Warren speak. He speaks Senator Sanders speaks. What happens to the future of liberals in America in the next five or 10 years in the Democratic Party? Well, I think there's an, uh, I wouldn't call it all out war, but I think that there is a reckoning coming uh, with uh, the party because the party needs higher turnout among people who we used to say were young, you know, 18 to 25 or 18 to 29. But that generation is now 35 years old, right? This is not just sort of young people. And they need that core of people to vote. And that core of people is highly dissatisfied with the establishment leadership. And they believe that government should do more to take care of basic human needs. That's what they believe. And that's why there's been this long drawn out fight over this, what we call reconciliation package or whatever you want to call it, build back better. Um, you know, that the government should provide more help to live a decent, basic life. What? And you try to say, how do you pay for that? And they don't really want to hear it. What is the percentage that is liberal in America? Do you have a working number in your head? You know, it's an interesting thing. Uh, people polling really asks about party affiliation much more. You know, do you consider yourself a liberal or conservative? And then which party do you belong to? That's the way they word the question. Uh, and I think that most people want to say they're moderate. And, you know, so then they say, well, I'm an independent or I'm a Democrat or Republican. And so I, I think that, you know, pure liberalism, uh, I think, 
it, it's generational. What was a liberal in the 60s or 70s or 80s is not a liberal today in 2021. And that's the big disconnect. And the same thing happened, by the way, I hate to bring up that decade, the 1970s. Yeah. There well, was a big schism in the Democratic Party in Congress between people who were Democrats and people who were liberal Democrats. And ultimately, the liberal Democrats ended up winning. Uh, 30 years later, they lost the control of the Congress, though. Wendy, 1970s, also a time of inflation, which is the first time now that we're seeing a resurgence in the political implications of higher price increases, a higher rate of price inflation. What's your expectation for how this plays out in terms of that schism, in terms of the midterms? Well, I think the issue is combined with supply chain problems, right? Because people are willing to pay more now for things, but they go to the grocery store, literally, or the drugstore, pharmacy, wherever you're going to go. And it's, you know, it's not there. You know, you're seeing literally empty shelves. And that, I think, scares a lot of people, particularly people of an older generation uh, that thinks about regimes that never, you know, supplied their people with enough goods. Uh, even online, the wait time for things online is longer. It costs more. Sometimes they'll charge you for shipping now for things because they're just not available. These two things in tandem, I think, scare people. And I think they see it as a sign mm -hmm. of decline. And I think they'll blame the incumbent administration for that decline. Well, and the administration is trying to take action as a result, Wendy, announcing this 50 million barrel uh, release of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Why would President Biden choose that option instead of encouraging U.S. producers to pump more oil? It's an interesting choice. Other presidents have made it, Kelly, in the past. I think it's a it's a diplomatic choice, right? You're aligning with countries all over the world. So you have a little bit more cover. You're not just doing it. Uh, the U.S. is not just doing it alone. But I think a lot of people on the street, if you talk to them at the gas pump, literally, they'll tell you they have no idea why gas costs what it does. They don't understand the supply chain. They don't understand the reserve issue. They don't understand it. They just know they're paying 10, 15, 50 cents more a gallon. And they blame oil companies, gas companies, and they blame incumbent politicians. Well, and we've seen President Biden's approval rating taking a hit as a result of that particular issue of maybe the fact that it's taken so long to get any kind of economic agenda through Congress. Once Build Back Better, in theory, passes in the Senate as well, maybe that actually finally becomes legislation. The infrastructure bill is passed. He's taken this action on the SBR. Do you see his odds of getting approval higher as actually material higher, or is he going to be stuck down here? I think his his approval ratings are also intertwined with the longevity of COVID. And I think people are really mm. frustrated, obviously, mass mandates, vaccine mandates. The fact that the vaccine does prevent serious illness and hospitalization in most people, but not everybody. And I think people are just generally losing faith. And the problem is it's hard. That, that snowballs, right? So it's very hard to get that back, which is why the Democrats have to pass something. Even if it's a completely stripped down bill, they have to show they can still govern. Because if they can't, then they're going to lose suburban voters, which we saw already in New Jersey and, and Virginia. And if they lose them now, it's very hard to win them back, even if things get better. Uh, Wendy, thank you so much. Professor Schiller at Brown University, just too short a visit today. We have to do this again soon. As it is a joy to get out front of the onslaught of economic data tomorrow with Michael Faroli, Chief U.S. Economist at J.P. Morgan. Michael, I'm absolutely fascinated by the numbers that we have, how disjoint they are in our political debate. Let's start with the Atlanta GDP number, which is screaming 8%, or let's take real GDP plus inflation, which is a nominal GDP that would make China happy, 
Or let's look at real GDP run rate of 2.2% down near the famed Feroli potential GDP. How much of this nation is flat on their back in a weak economy? Well, not much, I don't think. Uh, the unemployment rate is, you know, one of the statistics you didn't mention is the unemployment rate is now 4.6%. Uh, and that seems to be moving only lower. So the labor market, which is probably the most important market there is, uh, looks pretty healthy. Inflation has been a problem the last two quarters, uh, and it will continue to be a problem uh, in, in uh, the fourth quarter. Uh, I don't expect that to persist to quite the same degree uh, mm -hmm. next year. I don't think many people do, of course. Uh, so there, is, there are problems, but I think it would be quite extreme to say that um, the economy is flat on its back. I mean, real GDP is at well, peak levels, uh, and we're basically back to the trend we were on before uh, the uh, pandemic, which was a pretty good trend. Michael, a lot of politicians are saying it is flat on the back, and of course, they're centered on inflation right now. We all understand uh, that debate. But so much of that is the demand for wage growth and then inflation-adjusted wage growth. Can J.P. Morgan model that we will see an actual real wage growth somewhere in the distance? So... Yeah, I think real wages will be growing next year, um, in part because, again, if headline inflation comes off, we know that nominal wage growth looks like it's on a pretty good trend right now. So all you need is some moderation in things like food and energy prices, particularly energy prices, to start to see real wages pick up. And actually, you know, one of the things, interesting things here that I think gets little noted is that the labor share of national income actually continues to be on an uptrend uh, recently through the pandemic. So. Uh, so I do think it's a, a good period for, for workers, certainly. Uh, vacancies are at an all-time high, and uh, workers are getting uh, the wage raises that you would think uh, would, would occur in a, in a labor market like this. And this is perhaps, Michael, why we are seeing traders bring forward their expectations for the Fed to act uh, and raise rates next year versus in 2023. You among them, actually, you had not expected any. And last week you said you do expect a rate hike next year starting in September. What did you see that changed your view on how the Fed will respond to this? So I think the important, probably the most important development is over the past four months, uh, the unemployment rate has come down 1.3 percentage points. Uh, now, we know that the Fed, uh, and beginning with, with Chair Powell, see inflation, really persistent inflation being driven by slack or the lack of slack. And that, uh, that's moving in a direction that suggests we're getting pretty close to full employment. And that is the last remaining condition for liftoff. Uh, having attained that condition, uh, I think we could easily see, see that in the second quarter of next year. Um, then I think it's only a matter of time before they lift off and try and get back to something more, uh, more of a normal policy setting because the labor market uh, and inflation are certainly looking uh, well, yeah. inflation's not looking normal, but the, the labor, uh, labor <laughs> well, market is getting back to normal. Michael, that's what I was going to ask. What's a normal policy rate right now? So I think... Uh, well, I guess first you have to say, what is the neutral real interest rate? I would think it's somewhere between zero and a half percent. So that would put nominal neutral interest rates at something like two to two and a half percent, which is about the peak we got in the last cycle. Uh, so I think uh, until something really breaks in the economy, the Fed would uh, seek to get back to that, you know, in measured steps, of course, unless there's a real problem. But I think that's kind of the goal here in terms of normalization of policies, getting short term rates back into something like that range. When talking about the normalization of policy, you also have a number of policymakers now out saying we may need to taper more quickly than initially thought. Do you expect an accelerated taper, and does that have any real bearing on liftoff? Certainly can't rule it out, uh, given the pace of, uh, 
of improvement in the labor market recently. Uh, and I do think it's kind of interesting that, you know, you had that remark from uh, Vice Chair Clarida last week, and he's, he knows he's out the door, so perhaps he, he feels like he can speak a little more freely, or perhaps even speak on behalf of the institution and the staff. So I think the fact that he was out there raising that idea suggests it's something we, again, can't rule out. I don't expect to see that in December. I do think they probably pays them to wait a little bit to see if there is a seasonality or a winter wave here before making that decision. But if it looks okay in January or March, uh, I think that's certainly a very live possibility. Larry Summers, the former U.S. Treasury Secretary, says get the taper over with within three months. Is that too quick? Uh, I mean, right now, I think it's a little too quick, but I do think there's a case to be made for that. Uh, and I guess following on your last point, uh, your last question, really the idea here is uh, you don't want to be hiking at the same time you're, you're tapering, right? So you want to get the taper done. So the sooner you get the taper done, the sooner you have the optionality to hike uh, if <coughs> developments next year really turned out to be quite a bit hotter than are currently anticipated. So, um, you know, right now, particularly with the risks of a, of a winter wave, I think it mm -hmm. might uh, be premature, but I think as we get into uh, early mm -hmm. next year, that bears uh, reconsideration. Michael, 2% inflation is sacrosanct. I want to go to your acclaimed Booth School seminar that you hold every year. And part of that debate will be around Adam Posen, Peterson Institute, and the idea of a new 3% level instead of 2%. Why can't we go decimals? And are we doing that right now? And that the new 2% is, say, 2.2% or 2.3%. Are we jawboning our way to that kind of level? So I, I don't think we can go to 3% for political reasons, right? So the Fed, uh, the fact that they even interpreted um, price stability as 2% inflation back in the 90s was a bit of a, a sleight of hand mm -hmm. uh, on the congressional mandate. I think going to 3 would be really quite um, risky for the institution. Some might say that flexible average inflation targeting was sort of a, you know, backhanded way of raising yep. the inflation target, which, you know, I think there is something to that. On average, it should be higher realized inflation. Uh, now, decimal points, um, given the imprecision of how we measure inflation, that might be a bit bit much. But, uh, uh, yeah, going to 3%, I don't think, is in the cards anytime soon. Michael, I want to finish up where we began the show with Tom asking a really good question. Are we just befalling hysteria with respect to inflation in these 1970s comparisons and this issue of framing inflation in a new 2021 kind of way? What is the consequence of the inflation that we're seeing now? Is it potentially a longer lasting, higher inflationary environment that we'll have to fight? Or is it that we are going to see growth materially slow and a bigger divergence between the haves and the have nots? So, first of all, I think 70s comparisons, I agree, are kind of hysterical. Uh, the central banks around the world have learned the lessons of that uh, period. Um, and that period didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen over the course of one year. It happened over the course of the late 60s into the 70s. I think the bigger risk here is that the Fed does, you know, get caught uh, uh, with inflation that's not transitory, that is persistent. Uh, and then I do think they'll do the right thing, which is tighten policy until... Uh, grow slows enough to wring out that inflationary pressure. I think the risk here is that for whatever reason, it seems like anytime you slow the economy uh, uh, to a certain point, uh, or it's hard to slow the economy to you know, just the, the right level. In fact, when you slow it, it tends to go tip into recession. Uh, so I think the worry more is that, not that we have a 70s inflation, but that when the Fed realizes inflation is more persistent, mm -hmm. they have to catch up to the curve, that they're 
arguably behind, and in doing that, they could really tip, uh, tip the economy back into a, a downturn. Michael Feroli, thank you so much for joining today with JP uh, Morgan as well. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.